Episode 4 The Norman Conquest Or how the British class system became established and entrenched by some snobby French nobles whose descendants still have second homes in the Dordogne today. It happens all the time. You arrive at some genteel drinks party on a warm summer's day. You're hot and your mouth is dry. But now you can almost taste that big cold glass of delicious beer. And then the host utters those dreaded four words. Red or white wine? Um, I'd rather have a beer if you have one, please. No, it's just wine, but there's mineral water if you don't want to drink. And you think, yes, I do want to drink. I want to drink beer, thank you very much. Not red wine, not white wine. I want to drink the English national tipple and not stand around wincing as I sip some acrid plonk just because you think vin rouge is somehow more refined or civilised. And it's all bloody William the Conqueror's fault. Coming over here with his fancy French ways and an entirely new ruling class, he turned the free English into serfs, he seized the land, he laid waste whole areas of the country, massacring the local population, burning homesteads and food stocks so that the survivors would die of starvation or disease. But did he ever stop to think about the likes of me, being forced to stand at some snooty bloody garden party, sipping Pierre d'Or, and wondering just how cross my wife would be with me if I popped down to the off-licence and came back with four cans of Hofmeister. For this, and other reasons, England's last Saxon king was determined to protect the kingdom he had acquired at the beginning of the fateful year of 1066. England was a divided and poorly prepared kingdom. Harold II was doing his best to hold it all together, but we all know what it's like trying to organise large groups of people to do anything. No, listen, everyone, listen. Can you not keep wandering off because we have got to stay here on the south coast in case we need to fight a big battle? Excuse me, where were you going? I'm just popping him to my state. I won't be long. No, no, that's what I'm saying. It's really important that we all stay right here. Oh, hang on, I I've got a message. Oh, there. Change of plan. Listen, everyone, we all have to go up north to fight the Scandinavians. But you said we had to stay here to fight the Normans. I thought the Normans were Scandinavians. Listen, Harold, is it all right if I meet you up there? No, it is not. Everyone, please try and stick together and listen for instructions. Harold II's army had waited on the south coast all summer for William. But isn't it always the way? You wait ages to fight one army, and then three come along at once. Harold's disloyal half-brother Tostig had lost power in Northumberland, and then teamed up with the King of Norway, who also believed the English crown to be his. Leaving the south coast undefended, Harold was forced to march north to take on this invading army. Tostig and Hadrada United had already won their first local battle in the qualifying stages, which had put them through to face King Harold in the second round. But the Saxon army was too much for them, and they were so comprehensively beaten that of the 300 longboats in which they had arrived, only 25 were required to take survivors back to Norway. The Battle of Stamford Bridge finally ended the Scandinavian threat to England, and later provided an easy headline for sports writers every time a Chelsea home game involved a minor scuffle. But fixture congestion being what it was at this time of the season, Harold now had to rush south, because William the Conqueror had just landed in Sussex. Um, 
Why is he called William the Conqueror? Oh, don't worry about that, Harry. It's just a nickname. <sighs> In fact, at this point, William was known by the name he had had before the PR guys had been brought on board. William the Bastard was the illegitimate son of the Duke of Normandy and a lowly tanner's daughter. Many years before Hastings, when the Duke was besieging a castle at Alisson in France, the garrison inside mocked him with the origins of his mother's family, hanging animal hides over the ramparts and beating them. This little bit of topical satire did not go down too well with the Duke, and when he captured the fort, he ordered that thirty-two of them have their hands and feet severed in front of the townsfolk. But apart from that, William liked a good joke as much as anyone. For the campaign that would earn the Conqueror his enduring nickname, William assembled an invasion force using a sort of 11th century share issue. For just a small investment of a few hundred soldiers and horses, you could be the proud owner of this lovely estate in the famously sunny resort of Mercia. See brochure for details. Please note not all participants can be guaranteed an English country home. You may be horribly killed by axe-wielding Saxons. The famous battle didn't actually happen at Hastings, but at a nearby place called Battle. I suppose the Normans were walking around wondering where they were supposed to be fighting the Saxons until they saw the signs pointing out the road saying, Battle, three miles. Oh, look, it's this way, lads. Hang on. We can't fight the Battle of Battle. That would just be stupid. It was the morning of October the 14th, 1066 and Harold continued to do his best to get his motley soldiers organised. Now, listen, we all have to stay on the top of this hill. Sorry, could everyone stop talking? I was just saying we all have to stay at the top of this hill and not chase any retreating Normans, OK? Chase the retreating Normans. Got it. No, no, don't chase the retreating Normans, because we're all foot soldiers and they have cavalry. So if we come off the hill, we lose our advantage. Did you all hear that at the back? Something about foot soldiers have to come off the hill or something. William arranged his forces along the bottom of the hill, with his back towards the coast where his boats were waiting, should he suddenly decide he needed them. Then his bowmen began to fire on the English position. The Norman archers made little impression on the well-defended English ranks, and so throughout the morning the Normans were forced to charge up Senlac Hill towards the English shield wall, where they suffered heavy casualties. Time and time again they charged and were forced back. With discipline and patience, it looked like the Anglo-Saxons might be victorious. Even on the left flank, where the slope was gentlest and the Breton soldiers finally did reach the Saxon shield wall, they were forced to turn and flee. Come on, let's chase the retreating Normans. Didn't King Harold say something about that? Oh, maybe. Look, they're getting away. In a wild and undisciplined charge down the hill, the Saxons broke ranks, thinking the enemy were on the run. But the Saxons were the victim of a feigned retreat. Once the English were off the hill and out of formation, the highly trained Norman cavalry suddenly appeared and massacred the foot soldiers. This tactic was repeated on other parts of the hill until the English defensive line was completely exposed. Two of Harold's brothers died, and finally King Harold himself was slain, although accounts of how this happened vary. He is popularly believed to have got an arrow in the eye, but this might just be a case of mistaken identity on the Bayer tapestry. One 11th century account does have Harold pulling this arrow from his eye and fighting on, until a Norman knight skewered him through the heart 
chopped off his head while his guts were strewn across the ground and his left leg was cut off at the thigh. Oh, and then his corpse was castrated just for good measure. Luckily, these details didn't make it into the Bayer tapestry. They were worried about getting a 15 certificate, and there was already a lot of controversy about all the gratuitous violence in these so-called tapestry nasties. It doesn't take much to work out that the Bayer tapestry isn't 100% reliable and honest. For a start, it's not a tapestry, and it isn't from Bayer. The Canterbury Embroidery, as it should be called, is 230 feet long and was not completed until the mid-1070s. Imagine then the scene when this enormous work of art was finally laid out before King William the Conqueror. Your Majesty, we present the Bayer Tapestry, the largest embroidery in all of Christendom, hand-stitched by hundreds of artists from your new kingdom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people here are the Norman soldiers, are they? That's right, sir. Hundreds of them, individually embroidered in lavish colour. Mm-hmm. These figures, they're a bit, uh, well, how can I put this? Well, they are a bit rubbish, aren't they? Hmm? Rubbish, sir? Yes, you know, uh, very badly drawn, childish, little stick men fighting each other, just not very good. But, sir, this embroidery has taken years of painstaking labour by dozens of devoted artists. Artists, eh? <laughs> Do me a favour. Look at these horses, eh? They look like a six-year-old did them. But horses are really hard, sir. I can never get the legs to bend the right way. What's wrong with a few close-ups, eh? or a bit of a scenery here and there? It's a crap tapestry, let's be honest. No wonder you have to have all this writing across the top explaining who everyone's supposed to be. Sir, it was created to be displayed in your royal palace. Look, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. Why don't you guys keep it at Bayeux? Maybe I'll come in and see it when I'm next over in Normandy, yes? Perhaps the reason that the Bayer Tapestry is not the world's finest work of art is that the brutish Normans were less concerned with what it looked like and more interested in what it actually said. For the Bayer Tapestry is a piece of spin. It is propaganda, the Pravda of the 11th century. It demonstrates the truth of that old adage that history is knitted by the winners. 1066 was the last time a group of immigrants started at the top of the pile instead of at the bottom. Yet it seems we've still not recovered from having an alien upper class foisted upon us nearly a thousand years ago. And so, affecting French sophistication is still de rigueur, while all our offensive words are Anglo-Saxon. Excrement and shit mean the same thing, but one is French, the other is Saxon. That is why you will never hear a BBC newsreader saying, a number of British beaches have lost their blue flags after EC inspectors found unacceptably high levels of shite. French vocabulary defines the language of refinement, law, government and finance. The very word parliament comes from the French parler, meaning to fall asleep on the back benches and have a disturbing dream about Anne Widdicombe. Animals, as looked after by the peasants in the fields, are still known by their Anglo-Saxon names. Pig, cow, calf but once they are served up at the banquet, they are referred to by their French names, pork, beef, veal. 
And then they become McDonald's 100% beef McDippers and go full circle to the bottom of the social scale again. Of course, every society has its social divisions, but the British class system has always been more peculiar and divided than most, and much of this dates back to the Norman Conquest. In other countries, class distinctions evaporated more easily, but here, where they were exacerbated by race, language, custom and appearance, there remain a thousand subtle nuances that distinguish the descendants of the Norman barons from the descendants of the Saxon peasants, all of them with some sort of insidious value judgment attached. Whether you look down on someone from a Norman horse or a Japanese 4x4, the principle is the same. Perhaps one day soon, the values of the Saxon majority will prevail, and the ordinary English peasant, tilling the strip of land on the council allotment, will feel the equal of that land-owning horsey family with a second home in France. I'll raise a glass of beer to that. Sorry, it's just red or white wine, or mineral water if you're not drinking. <laughs>